together. I'm Randy Woodley. I'm Bo Sanders. Hey, this is episode two. We're out in a farm recording. Uh, we're calling this podcast headquarters for now. Sure. And this is episode two when we wanted to talk about what happens out here at the farm. Yeah. So thank you for tuning in. And you've probably figured out by now that there's a play on words with the piecing it all together. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the, uh, the importance of the name. But um, we're glad that you're here. Welcome to the conversation. Yeah, and even the name Elohe, uh, it's a, a Cherokee word um, that, that basically could be considered uh, in the big construct of the word peace or uh, the ancient uh, Israel um, uh, scriptures, it, the, the word shalom is sort of used. And so, so I, I ended up, because of the audience I was trying to speak to, uh, entitling my book, Shalom in the Community of Creation and Indigenous Vision. But in general, I studied um, in my PhD in intercultural studies what I called the Harmony Way, which is basically sort of the, the original instructions for all indigenous people. And we're all indigenous from somewhere, you know, depending on how far back. Um, and so, um, so it's the idea of this big category of peace, not just, um, not just like not uh, the absence of war, but peace in that, and this is what encompasses some of the word elahe, uh, is um, that the, the ground is producing in abundance, and it's providing for everyone, and that no one's going hungry. And, and, uh, and, and so with the construct of like shalom, for example, uh, similar in that if, if half the community's fed and half the community's hungry, no one has shalom. Mm. And so it's the same with elahe. So it's, a, it's seen as a place of abundance in a place where um, uh, people can come together and all voices are heard and all that sort of thing. So, huh. And that's why it, it's relevant to what we're talking about, piecing it, P-E-A-C-I-N-G, yeah. piecing it all together. So peace in that sense, <clears throat> in shalom, isn't just an absence of war or violence. Right. Because sometimes it gets overly simplified as shalom, meaning, you know, we're not fighting. Mm-hmm. But... In your vision, in your understanding, shalom is so much more, and so it's peace that, like you said, if half the community is struggling or hurting or hungry, that's not shalom. That's right. So, uh, in the same way that the Grand Canyon is not a stream or a puddle, yeah, or, or I'm sorry, the, the, the Niagara Falls is not a stream or a puddle, or the Grand Canyon is not a ditch, right? Um, shalom or Elahe or the Harmony Way, or in uh, so many different languages, it's called different things among indigenous peoples. But, but all of those, we, we have been trite with that word. And people will sometimes even say that to each other, shalom, shalom, yeah. even if they're not Jewish, right? Yeah. And, um, and, so, and, and they think it's a greeting of peace. Right. But it's, and it's much the same way uh, in Hawaii, right? Yeah. So my Hawaiian brothers and sisters tell me that uh, aloha yeah. is, is jam-packed full of that good intentions and that love and that prosperity and that fullness and all those sorts of things. And so the English language um, has not probably done a good job of uh, translating these things, or maybe they've done a, a, a job of uh, making them more trite than they should, because life has a lot more meaning than the words sometimes we put in the English language. I think it's so valuable to um, pause, yeah. hit pause from time to time and look at concepts like that, like Aloha, where... Uh, it has been appropriated because it's kind of novel and exotic. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. so, you know, uh, Western folks love to, to bring in f- things like that because they say, oh, it's, it's how you say hello. 
Yeah. But it's so much more than hello and yeah. goodbye. Yeah, or or New Zealand, um, my Maori friends, they they say um, you know kiora and aloha, elohe. All of these have breath in them. If you notice, um, it doesn't mean every construct like that has breath in it, but they do. And in, in Polynesia, um, they do what's called hungi. So you go nose to nose with the person and you share each other's breath. <laughs> oh, man. Right? So, um, and it's a very uh, uh, sacred thing. It's a very spiritual thing. You share in each other's breath. It means wow. you're, you're giving your life and they're giving their life. Yeah. So it's a very much a construct of this big picture piece. Wow. Right? So that's why you named the farm Eilahe. Eilahe. And we, we, after we talk about what ha- happens at this location, we'll talk about the history of um, Eilahe. Yeah. And, okay. But... So we're out here in uh, Yam Hill, yeah, Yamo, oh. which is one of the um, one of the bands, original bands of the Kalapuyans, who were the original inhabitants of this land. Yeah. yeah. So you've got more than four acres out here. No, three and three oh, quarter. Less than four acres. Yeah. Oh my goodness! But so much happens on that acreage. Yeah. So we just walk, like walk us around a little bit. You've got you've got a guest cabin. You've got fruit trees out there I'm in a greenhouse you have goats uh, vegetable garden you've got so much going on and a seed company as my wife says we believe in the seeds Mm. so just think of what would happen if all the seeds were gone or if all the seeds were stolen by groups like Monsanto and ConAgra and, and other chemical companies who are trying to take over all the seeds of the world in the same way that Nestle's and Coke and Pepsi are trying to take over all the water in the world right so, I mean, what are you going to do without seed and water? Or if only wealthy people can afford seeds and water. Um, so these concepts, even though they, people may not quite have put it, pieced it all together yet, um, are, are going to be very important in our future. And so um, we, for, a, a, for, for ethical reasons, um, have a seed company, um, not because we needed one more thing to do, but because we believe in. So all of our seeds are open pollinated. That means that um, they're not hybrids, they're not genetically modified, and we've taken the Open Seed Source Initiative Pledge. So we'll never patent a seed, and they're free. So my wife has a shirt that says, Free the Seeds. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and this is uh, really important. And so, so all the plants, um, and we're a virtual botanical garden in terms of uh, trees and berries and shrubs and, and native plants and all of those. And then we also grow these um, uh, these annuals that are, you know, from cucumbers and tomatoes. And, and many of those are indigenous. Um, uh, we have a, uh, uh, a watermelon that has a handle um, mm-hmm. that was just given to the public uh, this year. It's been around um, uh, for possibly between 2,000 and 3,500 years. Um, it was found uh, in an Anasazi pot, and this particular style of pottery was um, um, uh, between uh, during the Anasazi period of those that particular time, really from 1500 BC to uh, 50 AD, and so it could have been for anywhere from there. So we know it's probably at least 2,000 years old. Um, and it's a, a really cool pink watermelon, and, and some of the handles are so crooked that you could have easily, someone could have carried a, a stick on their back and carried, you know, six or eight watermelons with them oh, in the yeah. desert. Wow. Um, so, so there's that old watermelon. We're calling it the uh, Anasazi okay. watermelon um, in honor of those people. And that's one of the things we do also. We decolonize the names. 
So of these American, um, and, and watermelon is traditionally thought to be from Africa, but many scientists here believe that this was the uh, initial traditional American watermelon. <laughs> um, so uh, we decolonize the names. Um, so we take uh, something that uh, um, uh, might be known for uh, in Europe for uh, a family. So, for example, the, uh, the Borgia family. Uh, in Italy, you've heard of them, right? Yeah, popes and mafia, and yeah, and yeah. yeah, the Borgia. So, um, so, so they have a, uh, a principal Borges tomato oh. that they mess with. Well, that originally came from down around Oaxaca, so we renamed it. You know, <laughs> um, and you can do that with yeah. with open source seeds, with huh. open pollinated seeds. Huh. And so, we just want to give honor to whom honor is due, and and. And, and so maybe a family had it for, you know, 100 years or maybe a farmer had it for 30 years like this watermelon or, or 40 years. And that's admirable and wonderful yeah. and everything else. But the indigenous people had it for perhaps thousands of years. And so and probably were the original cultivators. So um, and so uh, so at our, our farm, you see like the the blue Hubbard squash, for example, which is this big squash. And it, it actually um, was named after a woman named Hubbard in Massachusetts. Um, because they brought it from the Caribbean, oh, and uh, and they they brought it from the Caribbean and then um, into Massachusetts, and then she raised it, and and uh, and so because she was selective in the process and created it, so we call that now the blue carib. Oh, so after the carib uh, people yeah. in the Caribbean, so interesting. Yeah. Anyway, so we've got lots yeah. of things going on. Our seed company. I can talk the whole show here just about seeds. And well, let me that's say, probably not appropriate. I know that these are all like your children, so you can't have a favorite. But I'll just tell you one of my favorite things that you guys have out here is that you were given an ancient squash. Yeah. And um, the Gitil Coastman. Yeah, and it's uh, it's a big one. It's, I mean, it's, it's a throwback squash, and uh, you came to have it through a very interesting way. You planted it two years ago, were able to get seeds, and now it's an actual, um, like a heritage breed almost. Yeah, oh, it is. Well, yeah. it's a, what we call land race. Okay. Right? So land race would be sort of the, all the original stuff there. Yeah. And uh, in, in other words, nothing's been bred out of it or nothing's been bred to it. And these squash, they're oh, they're so incredible because um, they uh, they taste sort of like a to me a combination between a sweet potato and a pumpkin, and and they they must be so vitamin rich. You can just taste the health when you when you have them. My wife makes all kinds of things with them, but um, yeah, and 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 those um, were basically uh, there's so there's several stories. One is that they were found uh, on the Menominee Indian Reservation in Wisconsin. And they were in an old pot, and they, they judged that pot to be about 800 years old. Okay. Um, and so then these seeds were sent up to Canada, mm-hmm. and uh, they were grown. And then in the second or third generation, I forget which, um, I was given nine seeds um, just by coincidence. that I knew a friend of mine, Steve Heinrichs, was friends with the person up there taking care of things. And, um, and so uh, we grew nine, and nine plants were viable, which is pretty, that's pretty good odds, that's right? Amazing. So 100% viability. Um, pretty large seeds. And then from those nine plants, and we've been able to have and give away a whole lot of seeds. Um, we haven't sold those seeds yet yeah. because, um, 
we usually wait two to three seasons of viability to make sure okay. that they're they still have live a okay. lot of good viability. But um, yeah, yeah, those are and, and then there's some controversy. Some people say, well, no, we've kept that squash. It's just changed a lot, you know, and things like that. But so we're not exactly sure okay. about um, all the story. Yeah. But I like the story. It's a yeah. good story. Yeah. Um, and hopefully there's some truth to it. So. Yeah. Well, all right. Well, obviously we we have good talk. All morning about everything going on. Uh, this place is so alive. Maybe we can do a show just on seats. Just sometime. on seats. That's okay. when Edith would come and talk. <laughs> okay, all right. The two other things I want to talk about related to the farm is um, you partner with this group. Uh, we call them woofers. So uh, the, people come out and either intern here uh, or come out and learn about. Um, permaculture. Yeah. And and so just talk to us about that partnership of the. It's the worldwide. Uh, Worldwide Organization of Organic Farms. Okay. Woof or Woofers USA. So, um, yeah, people really from anywhere all over the world can come and woof. And it's kind of like in the old days there used to be, and I'm older, right? So in the, when I think of the old days, that's that's older. But people used to go to, the only opportunity was something like a kibbutz in Israel. Mm-hmm. Right? And they would go and spend a summer or whatever. Yeah. And this is similar. Sometimes they'll come for a week and sometimes two and sometimes a month. And, and if we're really fortunate, uh, we have, and if they're good workers, because not all are, mm-hmm. but most are, um, they'll come for uh, you know, like a whole summer or three months or even longer. So, um, and we've had a few uh, that have been great that way for several months. Um, a lot of help because Edith and I are just not able to handle everything on the farm here by ourselves. So, um, although this year we're pretty short on woofers, um, yeah. we had a really great young couple at the beginning of uh, planting season, and then we sort of died out. And then I think we've got another couple coming in uh, mid July. Okay. Um, so yeah, we're kind of looking for folks right now okay. so to help give us a hand. All right. And then the last thing I wanted to make sure we covered is you have so many groups. Uh, small groups and sometimes large groups uh, that come out here mm-hmm. and either spend a day, maybe they do a little bit of labor, but mostly they like to sit around the fire and uh, talk with you mm-hmm. about this. So what's the draw for them? I know you just had a group here last week from the Inhabit crew up in the Pacific Northwest. Um, what's the draw to come? What, what's the main thing people come to talk to you about? Yeah, so I wish I knew, but <laughs> I, I wish you could explain to me why in the world people want to sit and listen to my wife and I for yeah. a couple of days. You yeah. Know? Um, but uh, I guess uh, it's a different experience for them. Um, and, and one of the things that they say is that you guys sort of have a whole vision. And when we look at the farm and we look at your spirituality and and uh, your views on things, we see this sort of wholeness, this integratedness. And I, I, you know, I, uh, I'm guessing that that's maybe what's drawing people. Um, and so folks will bring leaders from their denomination out. They'll bring leaders from their organization. Um, we've had uh, as many as like 40 people at once, but um, our bunkhouse only handles uh, uh, six right now. Um, we're still looking for uh, two more sets of bunk beds. But um, eventually we could probably handle 10 there. And uh, then we, we sleep some people, you know, upstairs in one of the bedrooms. And we sleep some people in the trailer when we need to. And, but, um, yeah, we have these little, uh, I don't know if you want to call them, I guess you call them schools, mini mm-hmm. schools, that are often unplanned. We don't really advertise. We don't really, it's just word of mouth. And people go, hey, could we come spend a couple of days with you? And we're like, sure, mm-hmm. you know. 
yeah, let's figure it out. So in this group, they came down from the Seattle area and they you know, sit around or they take a tour of the farm and then they sit around you guys eat together and uh, then you have the fire ring out back and people were talking. Yeah, so that was just the Parish Collective. Okay. So, you know, that's like Tim Sorens, Paul Sparks, um, Dwight Friesen, etc. and company. Mm-hmm. And they just brought their uh, uh, some of their national leaders down. I think there were 16 of them who sat around the fire. Um, we just had a conversation. And actually... We ran out of time. Uh, they, we would have had much more to talk about, but uh, they only had a limited amount of time. They had to leave by 10.30 the next morning. So. Okay. But th- then the, there may be something else cooking here. Okay. I may be wrong about all of this, and they may just be coming from my wife's cooking. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah, actually, I would buy that. I would really buy that. Is there, a, is there a theme, a main theme that develops in those conversations or something people keep returning back to? I think. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, based on uh, what I just heard here, uh, I think they might come to hear me make outrageous statements and then explain them. <laughs> because, uh, because they don't seem to be around people making those statements. And uh, so... I think uh, they come out here to get tested a little bit. Um, one of the great questions that was asked Edith, because um, um, we always have its interaction, um, they, they said, what do you feel um, about these groups of, and often they are primarily white folks, right, mm-hmm. that come out and, um, and, and listen to this stuff and leave. And she just said, um, I, I hope you understand that we really believe these things, that this is not some kind of exotic entertainment. This mm-hmm. is not some, we're not putting on a show. And, and I don't think most of the people who come are looking for that, but, but, um, uh, but this is stuff that we live by and, and we stake our lives on. And, um, and I hope that uh, you folks will just take it seriously when you go home and think about that. And I mm-hmm. thought that was a really good word. Oh, it's really powerful. We're so grateful that you have tuned in. We're looking forward. We're going to put out these first four episodes as kind of a batch. We wanted to make sure that um, that right up front, that place took center stage. Because to us, it really matters. Yeah. Can I say just a word about place? Yeah. I, um, I had a dream when I was in Carson City, Nevada a long time ago. And, and it was of a place, right? And I could tell it was in Cherokee country. And it was this... Sort of dream that was like, uh, I guess it would be like sort of my utopia if I could. And, and it was a place of, of bringing all the old traditions, uh, Cherokee traditions back. Right. It was a place uh, um, where uh, many people came from all over. Uh, it was a place where it went back to a more traditional lifestyle, self-sustaining, mm. etc. And uh, we sort of chased that vision. I'll, I'll give you a very, very short story. Maybe we can do the long story some other time. But um, and, and ended up in Kentucky, and uh, and and that place was becoming a reality at Elahi Village for Indigenous Leadership, and so um, we were having very successful schools. We had about a dozen other families and community living there. Um, we had um, uh, uh, crops going, orchards planted, buildings built. We we really built the place up, and then we were eventually we lost the the farm the 50-acre farm. We had cattle and horses and sheep and goats and all old heritage breeds, right, for the same reasons that we choose the heritage plants. Um, and uh, and we lost it due to violent pressure from a white supremacist group that were our neighbors and a paramilitary group with a 50 caliber machine gun that did not hesitate to fire that whenever they wanted to intimidate us. 
And so we, we had to, to sell that, and it went for two years, and we never sold it. We finally sold it at the bottom of the economic downturn and ended up basically um, completely uh, broke. And uh, starting over again, we started out here in Oregon, um, largely because of uh, we liked uh, the um, Portland Seminary milieu and the questions people, students ask. And um, and also because of my, my uh, good friend Richard Twist was out here this way. And so um, uh, we came out here for those reasons. Uh, and we just loved Oregon. Oregon's a wonderful place. So, um, and, and restarted. And, um, and so it has a, a long history of a vision. And so this is, I think people, when they come out, they maybe, without even hearing that story, recognize that this is a place of vision. Uh, and, um, and the land itself is something that we talk about a lot. Uh, we talk about the spirituality of the land. We talk about the uh, former um, keepers of the land, the Kalapuyan peoples. And uh, we honor them with, uh, by telling the story of, of settlement here. And, and we make sure people understand that we uh, are part of that uh, uh, settler colonial group that has come in their land and, and dispossessed them. And so even though we're native people, um, we too are are settlers here, and uh, and so we want to honor the people as much as possible. And and so um, so when we did move here, we we went to the uh, chairman of the uh, Grand Round Tribe, and and we asked her. We said we were about to buy this property, and um, we know that it belongs to your people. It was stolen from you, and in in God's eyes, you still are the keepers of the land, um, but. Um, we need a place to live, and we're, we are asking, what could we do to honor you, the Kalapuyan people, um, uh, to honor the land and to honor the Creator? And, and she very quickly said, plant huckleberries. And so, um, and then she began to tell me a story about how there used to be a lot of huckleberry picking around here, and now there's hardly any because it's mostly uh, vineyards and filbert orchards. Yeah. And uh, and so we've planted probably 35 huckleberries here since we've been here, and then we've we've also planted a lot of other native plants mm. to honor. Wow. To, to make honor. Two things about that: I did not know huckleberries could grow at this low elevation. I really associated them with higher elevation because you know my wife is from Montana mm-hmm. and. They're at really high elevations. I didn't realize you could plant them. Yeah, I guess they used to grow here That's pretty well. That's amazing. Yeah. Second thing is, uh, for those of you who are not from the Pacific Northwest, a filbert is also called a hazelnut. There you go. Yeah, just in case you didn't know what a filbert was. I didn't when I first moved here. Yeah. Well, that is episode two. Of piecing it all together. And we are so happy to be uh, initiating this conversation. We can't wait to get these episodes out and for uh, for people to join in the conversation. Just to let you know what's coming up, in episode three, we're going to talk about immigration and Romans chapter 13 and Jeff Sessions and all of the controversy around that right now. Episode four is actually going to be a conversation that I recorded last fall between uh, Randy and Edith were at the table with Thomas J. Ord up at my church in Vermont Hills in southwest Portland. And there's so, some radical statements made there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we're going we're gonna to put out that audio. We'd love to get some feedback there. And then I think it would be good for us to come back in episode five and talk about place. Um, for those of you who don't know, I wrote my master thesis um, back when I was a seminary student with Randy and Richard Twist, who you mentioned earlier. And one of the problems that I ran into is that I was from a missions denomination, the Christian Missionary Alliance, and when I talked about context, you know, so for contextualization, um, I, I, I ran into a cement wall because 
for a lot of us Western or, or white folks, when we say context, we mean the human civilization that happens over top of the land. Mm-hmm. But for Native folks, when they talk about a context, they're talking about the place. And I had to make, a, I had to go through a major conversion in my heart and in my mind in order to write in a different way that was not. Uh, based in that colonial missions mentality, yeah. I would love to talk about place again. Yeah, it's endemic in the Western worldview, okay. and um, and of course uh, Christianity picked up the Western worldview. In fact, they were the main propagators of it. I'd say. So yeah, so um, uh, we we hope that we can challenge worldviews yeah. in, in this show. I think that's yeah. that's probably one of my uh, um, agenda items. So I might as well put that right out there. I'm I'm hoping to convert people to a more indigenous worldview. Mm. Doesn't mean I. I want people to appropriate native things, mm-hmm. but um, I think uh, that there's a lot of health in uh, an indigenous worldview, and in fact, it may be the worldview that uh, that gets us through this uh, 21st century. Oof. All right. Well, last thing, if you want to support the podcast, please go to Patreon and look up Piecing It All Together. It's P-E-A, as in peace, two fingers up, peace, Piecing It All Together. Uh, you can join at $1 a month. Uh, get into the Facebook conversation group at $10 a month. Uh, you'll get an email where you can uh, give us feedback and uh, we'll read or play your audio or your email and it'll give direction to future episodes of the podcast. And at the $20 level, you'll get an invitation every other month to a Zoom chat of a live recording and uh, where your voice can be heard and you can contribute to the conversation. Yeah, and there is a, a Facebook page that is just completely open to anybody. So, so we don't want to get people confused with the Facebook group at a dollar a month and the Facebook page. So thank you for tuning in. Come uh, and join us in the conversation on Facebook, Twitter. You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. So many places where we're not even um, aware of everywhere that we're going up at this point. We're still learning the whole platform. So we're grateful to be up and running. And if my 19-year-old Redbird hadn't taken off, we could get up with Instagram real quick. But we're still trying to figure that one out. We're not really really up on the Instagram. We're trying to figure it out. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you in episode three.